0: we, have, we a have a special, special treat, treat for you today. today. We, we have, have the more. one, the only. Welcome to the State Lines Network. Hey friends, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Thanksgiving, Happy Hanukkah, I can't remember the rest of them, but happy everything. Happy holidays to all of you listening today. Welcome to episode 23 of the Boldly Going Podcast, where we talk to... Uh, creative, brilliant, inspirational people of the universe right here living on planet earth. And today is no different. Today is an incredible, incredible episode. I'm so excited about this episode for you to hear the story of uh, my friend, Ali Rouge. Allie has an amazing story. Uh, Ali, uh, I've known her since she was uh, like, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, since she was a teenager. Uh, I was her youth pastor for a while. Uh, has an incredible story of the life that she has lived up to this point and um, what she's doing now, living her dream. It's so exciting to see where she's come from and what she's doing now. Uh, Brilliant. And uh, I'm excited for you to hear it. Allie is amazing. She is the director of alumni at Amethyst Recovery Center. And um, uh, she is a recovering addict, and she helps other addicts uh, recover as well. And uh, she's going to tell her story. In fact, today, it's Wednesday, uh, Wednesday the 7th, December 7th, uh, she is going to be on the Dr. Oz show today. So if you're listening to this today, uh, try to catch the Dr. Oz show today, uh, telling her story. She's, uh, she's on there with Dr. Drew, uh, talking about addiction and recovery, and um, man, what what a fascinating story she has to tell and she talks about it a lot, uh, asks her a lot of questions about addiction and, and uh, her own story and her own recovery process. Really, really, really great. And um, you can check her out if you want to follow her. She's on Instagram. She's on uh, Facebook. But on Instagram, if you'd like to check her out and follow her, it's L A L L Y, A-L-L-Y, that girl, uh, A-L-L-Y-T-H-A-T-G-U-U-U. R-L So Allie that girl Girl spelled with three U's uh, Go check her out there And you can also check out um, Her her center that she works for Amethyst Recovery Center Which is an incredible um, uh, Recovery center They're doing some some great things Go check them out at Amethystrecovery.org A-M-E-T-H-Y-S-T Recovery uh, Recovery.org Amethystrecovery.org uh, maybe you're maybe you're struggling with addiction. Maybe you think you have an addiction. Maybe you know someone you think has an addiction. Uh, They're there to help. Uh, and especially at the holidays, that is a big, big thing uh, this time of year. Um, depression goes way up. Um, suicides go way up. Uh, drug addiction gets uh, larger. So uh, and alcohol as well, alcohol addiction as well. So um, if you maybe you maybe you're questioning, you feel like you have a problem. Um, call them, they'll talk you through it, they'll give you some advice they'll, they'll walk you through, hit up Alice she'll be glad to talk to you as well if you know someone uh, in in addiction that's struggling or you're a parent of a child or you have a sibling, something, a family member, whatever uh, call them, they will uh, give you some advice as well, as well. they'll uh, gladly help you through that and what to do, so please uh, don't hesitate to do that go check it out and uh, as always, we're a part of the State Lines Podcast Network, so please do me a favor. Go over to state-lines.com, check out the website, check out the other uh, podcasts that are there. So many brilliant things going on on the website there. Some great articles, great writing, great podcasts. Go check them out. And uh, it's the holiday season. We uh, we always encourage you to get involved in your community, do something to give back. Uh, I don't think we should just do it at the holidays. We should do that year-round. I think that should be a lifestyle for us. And, but especially at the holidays, is a great time to, to begin that if you're not doing it or to jump into something new. I'd love for you to check out my organization, Current Initiatives. We do some, um, I feel like, amazing things year-round. The Laundry Project, Hope for Homes Project, and this time of year, Affordable Christmas. So please uh, feel free to check out engagecurrent.org. You can check out our initiatives there. You can sign up to volunteer uh, for the season, you can also – would love for you to uh, to give on some level. Donate if you have uh, the means uh, this season to donate as we do our affordable Christmas projects. Uh, however you want to get involved. If you look at that and think, oh, ah, that's not for me, uh, go look for something in your community, something that excites you, something that you are passionate about that you can get involved with and make the world a better place. Uh, and follow the example of Allie because that's what she's doing. She has found her – uh, her sweet spot, I guess you could say, the thing, her passion, the thing, uh, her new addiction, and that's helping people in recovery continue to recover and beat their addiction. So be like Allie, and as she said, go do the next right thing. <clears throat> this episode is titled, Never Deny Yourself the Struggle, something she said in the episode uh, that I think is very poignant, very uh, needed in understanding addiction, understanding trying to do the thing that um, you want to accomplish, accomplishing your dream. Um, accomplishing a goal that you have in life, uh, we always try to avoid the struggle to accomplish that, and we can't. And uh, one of the things that she says in the episode about recovery that they that she tells people is to never deny yourself the the struggle. The struggle is important. It's important to name it. It's important to recognize it because that's the that's the first step. Struggle is important in the process of recovery. It's important in the process of accomplishing great things. So, uh, what better way? To end off, or or to hit the Christmas season, then what a great episode with Allie Rouge talking about uh, her story, never denying the struggle for yourself. So here we go, episode 23 with Allie Rouge.
1: Exactly what you said, like, I finally for the first time in my life have like found a purpose, yeah. You know, sorry, I'm just giving you like a rundown, but I just oh, wanted to good. thank you. It's already
0: recording, so just so you oh. Yeah. Oh, right. but I'll, <laughs> I'll edit, I'll okay, edit good. Yeah, there you go.
1: but I just want to thank you for like never judging me and you always supported me, you know, even though we didn't, you know, necessarily stay in touch as, as much, but you were. Yeah. Never judge me for my past, and I thought that was super cool. So thank oh, you. Of
0: course. Yeah. <laughs> well, some people can. No, um, yeah. People aren't. A lot of people are not great at. Right. Remembering that they're uh, just as flawed as the person they're passing judgment on. Right. So. Um, yeah, that's cool. So let me give some context at the beginning. Okay. Allie Rouge used to be one of my students when I was a youth pastor. Like. That's right. Man, 15 years ago? Yeah. 14 years ago, something like that. Right. It's been a long time. But uh, now, so you started to tell me you live in Stewart, Florida. Give me kind of a big picture of what you do now and then tell me about why you live in Stewart, Florida. Like okay. what's your, so you're going to be on the, this comes out tomorrow. It's, it's Tuesday right now. It comes out Wednesday. Also, tomorrow on Wednesday, you're going to be on the Dr. Oz show. Right. Which is incredible.
1: It is. It's amazing, especially where I've come from, you know, and that's, Basically, what I do in Stewart... I, I work at a substance, substance abuse treatment facility. Okay. And um, my title is director of alumni. So... Mm,
0: okay.
1: I work one-on-one with um, people recovering from drug and alcohol abuse on a daily basis. And um, part of my job as well is, is doing outreach um, and kind of spreading the word, you know, because it's, it is this thing... It's a huge epidemic in our country mm-hmm. that people don't want to talk about. You know, it has the stigma of, you know, drugs are bad and people who do drugs, you know, don't deserve a good life and, and all this stuff. And that's completely not true, especially from my own personal experience. So, mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, um, how did you get there? Cause you, okay. So when I knew you fifteen, sixteen 15, 16 years old, when I was a youth pastor, you're went to Wharton high school, I think. Right? Yeah. Wharton mm-hmm. in New Tampa. And 15, almost 15 years later, you're in Stuart, Florida, doing that. Right. How did you get from there to that? Which well, I'm sure is a long story.
1: It is. Um, but just, I guess, to give you the rundown, and what's funny is because I had struggled with alcohol abuse, and I remember being a member of the church that you worked at, And um, my peers all frowned upon it And they kind of told me, you know, something's wrong with you Something's wrong with you, why can't you stop drinking? You're underage, like you shouldn't be drinking This is not God's will and all this stuff And that's kind of where like the conflict started for me It's like I didn't understand why I couldn't stop Hmm. You know, and um, from like alcohol and like marijuana use My addiction completely progressed Um, You know, moved on to harder drugs and And um, that's kind of how I ended up in Stewart is I I went to – I myself ended up going to treatment over there.
0: So you put yourself in treatment?
1: Um, This last time, I have – it's kind of different over there. It's a similar story. Um, I actually first went over there for treatment in 2012, um, and it's actually called the South Florida Shuffle. And people will bounce in and out of treatment centers. Um, you know, I would get 60, 90 days sober and relapse and then end up back in treatment. So I actually attended 10 different treatment centers before something finally stuck. Wow. Yeah.
0: Um, by the way, there's no like official form to this just a conversation. Oh so uh, I yeah. have like a list of questions. No, I'm it's asking. cool. Um, so what was it for you? Why did it take 10 places or what didn't stick or what should did stick?
1: So for me, um, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into staying sober. Um, but for me, this last time, and this is kind of what I talked about on the Dr. Oz show, is is uh, my sobriety date's June 12, thousand fourteen. And I always like to talk about June eleventh, two thousand fourteen. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I was living in a motel down by Bush Gardens, and in, in like the ghetto of Tampa, and living with my drug dealer and. Um, owed him tons of money I had nothing to my name I had like, maybe three pairs of clothes I had no money and um and he kicked me out and I remember like sitting in my car on the side of the road I didn't even have enough gas to get to my mom's house and I'm, I was physically addicted to opiates and I'm sitting there and I start to go on withdrawal and I start to get cold chills and I'm sweating and I'm shaking and um I got this random phone call from my friend who was over on the East coast Mm -hmm. just to ask me how I was doing. And I remember like, as I'm sitting in that moment and thinking like I'm completely screwed, like I have no resources. My parents want nothing to do with me, you know, all this stuff. And, and here this God sent phone call, you know, and I, and I told her, I said, Chelsea, I need to get some help again. And so there I, you know, she drove three hours to come pick me up. And, um, I always tell people like because I can still remember it vaguely. But I was wearing um, like a zebra tank top, cheetah leggings. I had blood running down the front of my shirt. I had scabs all over my face. I had two black eyes and no toenails. I was like, (laughs) my toenails had just fallen off. So she takes me to this detox and they look at me and they're like, you can't be here. You need to go to the hospital. So um, she also told me I smelled like urine, which I don't remember that at all. Uh But um So I get to the hospital and um, spent the night there. And I woke up in the morning with these huge abscesses on my face. And um, they ran some tests. And they were like, you have MRSA, which is like a potentially deadly infection. Um, They said, it's in your blood. And it might kill you. And even if it doesn't kill you, you might go blind. Because I had an infection by my eye. And um, they said, you need to call someone to come be here with you. And I remember looking down at the phone next to the hospital bed, and I remember thinking there's not one person that would pick up my phone call. Like oh, my family oh. wanted nothing to do with me. I had no friends. I had screwed over almost everyone in town. And, like, hear, you hear that all the time, like, oh, you have to hit rock bottom in order for your life to change. And, and for me... The outside circumstances weren't different. You know, I was homeless. I didn't have any money. I I had overdosed. You know, I had been in those situations before. But for me, it was like this internal thing where I had pushed away every single person I loved and cared about. Mm. You know, so and I can still it's been now two and a half years and I can still remember that moment. And that's okay. kind of for me, you know, in recovery, we talk about just we have to surrender. Like mm. we have to turn our will over to God's. And um, I never knew what that meant. I'm like, what does that look like? You know, do I make a white flag and, like, run <laughs> it around town, you know? And and for me, it was just to stop fighting, you know, to yeah. stop fighting everything and to, to do the next right thing. And so, you know, I ended up being in the hospital for six days, and finally oh. my face healed, thankfully. <laughs> and I was yeah. not blind. Yeah. Um, but I went and admitted to my 10th treatment center after that. And started listening and started paying attention and started taking suggestions and my um, life just went up from there which is pretty cool it's you know now i like to tell my clients that are in similar situations you know homeless no money no nothing um it's actually a beautiful thing because there's only up to go from there mm. you know yeah. So even though it feels it's so true. Yeah. Feels terrible. It feels so hopeless. I mean, I can't explain to you, you know, the hopelessness in drug addiction. Um but but like I said it, it when you're at rock bottom, the only place to go is up.
0: So Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, man. <laughs> that's so heartbreaking to me. <laughs> that would be heartbreaking to me with any for anyone to tell me that story. But knowing you as a teenager
1: right.
0: and hearing that story, um, that's and not and like you said, it's you had pushed all these people away out of your life, and right. it's you know, I'm sure. I mean, at least I hope at some at some point along the way, someone was going, "Hey, you, something's wrong. You got to stop. What's happening?"
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it's. I think that for a lot of addicts, like we don't stop until we're ready. And I think mm-hmm. those nine other times I just wasn't ready. Yeah. You know?
0: Which I feel like is probably a contradiction as an addict because addiction, some, I may mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Addiction being the nature that it is. Addiction is almost somewhat out of control. I mean, you can't control it eventually if you get to the right point, but there's always, I feel like there's always that potential to continue to be an addict. So Absolutely. maybe you want to stop, but I can't. My body's addicted to whatever it is that I'm... Right.
1: And that's what I've learned. Like, so the difference between me and you is, you know, you can have, you know, a glass of wine or you can drink and get a little drunk and say, you know what, I've had enough. I'm going to stop now. Right. And so <laughs> my brain's wired differently. Where like, I get drunk and probably need to slow down and I can't. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of people say it's, oh, it's use your willpower, use your willpower. But there's actually studies done where our brains are different and actually the enzymes in our liver are different. Yeah. Where we don't, you know, process alcohol and other substances the way that, you know, quote-unquote no, normal people do. Mm. And we actually have something in our frontal lobe, which is like our decision-making abilities, that is different.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's, you know, to on the outside it looks... Unexplainable. Like, how do you have these good things and these amazing people in your life, and all these consequences from using, and you still continue to use? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's why I kind of buy into this whole disease factor. Sure. Like they call addiction a disease, and I and I believe that to be true. You know, it just might yeah. look differently than cancer or diabetes, but it is definitely a form of mental illness. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, which is interesting because it's such a it's such a weird debate to me about that because I do know people that. That look at addiction like well it's not a disease it's choice and on and on like you know we make it worse by calling it a disease and it gives people an excuse to just do whatever because well I'm I have a disease right and which first of all I go clearly you've never been addicted to anything or you've never had a problem that you necessarily couldn't get over right otherwise you probably wouldn't view things that way Um, but explain that a little bit in that because I understand it, I understand the and I try to explain to people all the time about like drinking for example yeah I can have I can have a beer Mm -hmm. and that's it like cool I had a beer with dinner Um, but what I've learned people I knew that were alcoholics that was a foreign concept to them because it's not the fact that yeah I could have one beer but if I have one beer I'm going to have twelve beers or and it's not a matter of I drink that one. I'm going to put it down and cool, and we'll walk away. It's I can't not drink another one.
1: Right, and actually, in um, 1935, where um, you know, 12-step fellowships were created, there was this doctor um, that actually worked with William James, who is like world-renowned psychologist, and okay. um, they described it as an allergy. Right. Oh, so, interesting. Ju- yeah. So, just like. Say I was allergic to strawberries, and and you're not, right? So when you eat strawberries, you're fine. They taste good. You digest them, whatever. I'll eat strawberries. I break out in hives. Maybe my throat closes. I can't breathe, right? So it's like the same with alcohol or, again, other substances. So Mm -hmm. you have a drink. You're fine. You digest it completely normal. My abnormal reaction which is, you know, definition of an allergy, is once I have that one, it triggers this, what they call phenomenon of craving, where I can't stop even when I want to. Mm. Yeah.
0: It's, it's very an interesting, interesting term, phenomenon of craving. <laughs> yeah. This is a cool term. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, this has been two years for you.
1: Two and a half, yeah. Two and a half years, okay.
0: Yeah. Um, and now you're... Helping other people.
1: Yeah, I work at a um, facility. It's in Port St. Lucie, Florida, called Amethyst Recovery Center, and um, our main goal is to help the sick and suffering addict and the people out there. You know, because when I was especially in Tampa, I was you know running in my addiction, and I didn't know that there was help available. I legitimately thought that that's how my life was going to be, and I was going to die, you know, a junkie on the street. Mm -hmm. That's what I thought that I was. My destiny was. You know, and um, that's what's really cool about the place that I work for is they're huge about getting out in the communities and spreading the word that you know hope is possible, or and hope changes everything.
0: So, is that your job now?
1: Yeah, that's what I do. Like that's Mm -hmm. your,
0: uh, which is probably more than just a job for you, I'm sure.
1: It it really is a lifestyle. and I've never been a nine-to-five kind of gal anyway, so I'll... And really, addiction, that's what... Our ongoing joke is addiction doesn't take a break, so neither do we. So we're really working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'll get phone calls at 3 o'clock in the morning of someone saying, Allie, like, I'm going to die if I don't get some help. Can you please help me? You know? And and it's so, it's so cool being a part of that process for someone because, the, you know, two and a half years ago, that was me. That mm-hmm. was me saying, like to my friend Chelsea, I need help or I'm gonna die. So now to get those phone calls, mm-hmm. it is it's terrifying and it brings me it, it keeps it green for me, you know? Like yeah. that was me and now I get to help people and assist them in getting their life back on track. It's it's a really powerful, beautiful thing. Like it's so cool. It's almost it's almost like it's almost like I replace the drug with that because I get mm-hmm. this almost like natural high from like mm-hmm. watching other people you know, come from nothing and build their lives up. It's so cool. Wow. It's so cool. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, that's cool. I I could see that because it is. It is a. It like, I, jokingly sometimes describe things like people ask me, like, oh, what do you? How does it feel to do what you do and to help people and all that kind of stuff? And I jokingly say it's almost it's kind of like a drug because it, it is. It really a, is. It is, and there probably, I'm, I'm, a, I'm guessing, I've never studied it, but I'm sure there is some type of, there's probably a physiological, mental thing that happens when that endorphin kicks in of that, like, satisfaction of being able to help that person. And it probably, in the same way, supplies the same type of feeling as drugs do. Absolutely. On some level. Um, so, some, when you talked about, when you started out talking about drugs... Actually first of all, I love your statement because I say it to people all the time do the next right thing. Is that something you learned in recovery or where did that come from for you?
1: Yeah, that definitely that's kind of how I try to live my life and how I actually stay sober you know <clears throat> is by doing the next right thing that's actually kind of like our solution that we teach people you know mm. because as addicts we're used to being dishonest and being manipulative and being selfish and self-centered. You know, so when you come into recovery, you almost have to flip that and you know start to do the next right thing and help others and you know steer aware, steer away from that selfishness and self-centeredness. You know, yeah, that's that's
0: pretty much our solution. Yeah, it's uh, awesome. Yeah. Well, what I love about it too, years ago, someone said that to me, and it, so in advice that I would give to people, that's kind of what I would say to them is, mm-hmm. and in regards to this podcast, kind of the same idea that I try to give to people is. Um, I think we mistake on the side of trying to paint the whole picture at once mm-hmm. rather than one step at a time. Right. You know, so it would, it seems like in recovery, the same thing. Like I'm trying to be sober, trying to get there, but there's a lot of steps in between that. And you can't just jump from here to being sober.
1: Absolutely. They say never deny yourself the struggle, right? Like mm-hmm. that's what they taught me. And I'll... I'll just throw it out there that I, my first job coming out of treatment with 30 days sober, I worked at Steak and Shake for $5 an hour serving cheeseburgers to drunk people on the overnight shift. (laughs) You know, like that was, that was my first job, you know, living in a halfway house that I couldn't afford. And, um, and again, like you're, you're absolutely right. The whole, like one step at a time, one day at a time, you know, that's how that's how we create our lives is, is slowly but surely, you know,
0: that's awesome. Yeah. I've never heard that. Never did de- deny your struggle.
1: Yeah. Cause that's where growth comes from.
0: <clears throat> wow. That's fascinating. That's really cool. Yeah. So, um, when you started out talking about drugs at the beginning and people's views of it and all that, um, it made me think of the kind of buzz statement that's been in America for decades of the war on drugs. Right. Um, What is that, in the context of what you do for people, does things like that, like campaigns like that, help, hurt, does it make any difference whatsoever? Is that a misguided philosophy of like, we're going to have this national war on drugs coming to our country and on and on, or do you have any even... Thought
1: about that? I think that it continues to put a negative connotation on the drug epidemic. Hmm. You know, um, instead of, you know, and I'm not sure because I think that kind of came around like what in the 60s and it's kind of fizzled out to this point where I feel like now and nowadays. Well, we have a drug czar. Right, in,
0: in, like as a right. as a government position. Right. right, I don't know what they do, which is
1: terrifying. Um, <coughs> but you know, I, I think again, putting the negative connotation on it is 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 self defeating in a way because you know we're dealing with a sickness here. We're not dealing with you know pro- necessarily. Yes, it is a problem, but they're looking at it more as. You know, oh, let's just stop this drug problem. When we're when in reality, like Mm. I said, there's so much work that goes into getting sober, and and I think to spread it more as you know, like I said, a mental disorder, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't treat bipolar or schizophrenic people that way. Like, Oh, let's stop this war on mental illness, you know? Right. Right. So it's, it's, I, I, we, in the company that I work for, we kind of take the approach of, okay, this is an illness. How can we treat it? Mm -hmm. And in spreading the word that, you know, there is help Mm -hmm. and you have to receive the help as we can't do this alone. Yeah. That's the other. So,
0: so basically it's not necessarily the product. That's the problem. It's, the um, the biggest problem within the person absolutely
1: and that's what we talk
0: about you you know you were talking about your friends who like
1: you can have one beer and still even two and a half sober two and a half years sober my first thought is well why would you want to have one beer <laughs> like that's how you know my mm-hmm. brain is wired is is and that's what I realized because even in sobriety even with the accident of substances, I still, for, I can only speak for myself, but for me personally, I still am trying to find things outside of myself to fill this void, Yeah, which is really interesting. You know, I've been addicted to the gym, I've been addicted to food, I've been addicted to men, you know, like anything, it doesn't necessarily have... Now, obviously, like drugs and alcohol are going to kill you first, right? But I sure. think it's something <clears throat> that's not talked about. And I have the personal belief that, especially in our society, I think... Everyone is addicted to something, whether Mm -hmm. it's online shopping, whether it's Netflix, whether it's, you know what I mean. Our society tells us the more stuff we have, the more materialistic things we have, the better we're going to feel. You know, and it's to me, it's like a sick, twisted thing where, yeah.
0: Which is funny that you that we're having this conversation now, (laughs) Christmas season, (laughs)
1: right, right? When it's
0: all about eat everything that you want, Mm -hmm. shop, go buy more stuff for other. I mean, for other people, but for yourself as well. Right. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I agree with that. Do you So, your the company that you work for or the addiction program that you went through, was it religious based on some level or spiritual?
1: They do um, and that again as part of like our 12step program uh, the program I work for is 12step friendly that's where we've seen the most success mm-hmm. um, and it is this is spiritual in nature right right so um, we try to steer away away from religion like we do use the word God but it's yeah. it's really interesting how they come up with and again in 1935 they realized well alcoholics and and addicts kind of get scared when we talk about religion mm-hmm. or we we um you know push them away when we talk about re- religion so why right. don't we call it a god of your understanding mm. and so they kind of give you give you the permission to make up this higher power that yeah. you can wrap your head around you know right. which is really cool so we do um an amethyst we have what's called the alpha series and it's kind of what we talked about it's whole nature is living your life by spiritual principles okay so um it's not just this belief system it's it's an actual like way of life and living your life with honesty and integrity
0: which is ironic because i mean at least with christianity that's what it's supposed to be right yeah
1: right unfortunately it's been skewed and watered down throughout the years and yeah but that's the main thing and and for me personally what i found in church you know i i kind of steered away, away from that venture just because i saw a lot of people talking the talk and then not walking the walk mm-hmm. you know you say these great things in church but like what do you do once you once you leave those doors yeah and um so again that's kind of what our whole program is based off of is living <clears> it
0: <in. throat> right yeah. well and what's fascinating to me with like you went through a program and so you are recovering, um, if that's, if I can, if that's the proper terminology that you are constantly in this recovery process, so you never, you're never whole, well, one, no, whole is not the right word. You could probably say it better than Cured. I'll cured. never be cured. cured. There you go. <laughs> that's the word. Um, and because you understand that and you recognize that your ability to help other people that are not as far along in that process they're just beginning that journey or they're just discovering that hey i'm an addict i need help um is so interesting because christianity that exactly what you do is the core of what christianity is meant to be or religion in general is meant to be a recognition of our own brokenness and hurt and working through that Doing the next right thing and then also helping the next person behind us that's a little farther along do the same thing. Right. Um, and I'm always fascinated by uh, how often church world gets that wrong and how often quote unquote non church world mm-hmm. gets it right without even intending to get it, <laughs> right. To get it right. Right. You know? Absolutely. Um, and You know, I sometimes wonder in a a story like yours, had the church world been more like that, how your life would have gone differently. Not that your life should change in any way, but I wonder at 15, 16 years old, had the environment been different, maybe you would have not made that path of one day you're homeless and sitting on Because maybe it would have you would have discovered it earlier, and someone would have walked you through it earlier.
1: Absolutely, and I, you know, I try not to what if and should have could have would have, but I absolutely do believe because obviously I remember being fourteen and fifteen, and the whole reason I got into church is because I was looking for something. I felt this void, and I was looking for anything to fill it. Right, Mm -hmm. and. You're right, and not, you know, putting putting down the church by any means, but it did feel judgmental and you need to live your life like this and if you don't do it then you're wrote off and all this and, mm-hmm. and I do feel like and I have found churches in my area now that are welcoming. Yeah. And and don't judge you for the mistakes you make. Right. Because we are human, right? Mm-hmm. So of course we're gonna make mistakes. Even, you know, in sobriety I still make mistakes. Sure. You know, and um and I, I do feel like if they mm-hmm. would have Accepted or said, you know, this is how life is, and, and these things happen, and we accept you and love you no matter what. You know, mm-hmm. things probably would have been different.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: probably true.
0: <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and I say that not because not not in a reflective way of like your life should, your life story should have been different. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say that more uh, in the more towards the church world environment of mm-hmm. had had that been better, maybe, right. and. You know, and maybe not, because hey, churches aren't necessarily designed for um, you know, recovery programs, although I think they're meant to be. Right. They, sh- they should be, but...
1: What's so interesting, yeah, that now even the services I go to now, and again, my perception is obviously different, and I'm biased because mm, mm-hmm. I am in recovery, but the things sure. that I hear in a religious setting, it coincide completely with... You know, the program I live my life by today. Yeah. <laughs> so, which is which is really kind of cool. And, and I always say that, that anybody could benefit from a 12-step program.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've said for years. In fact, I got in trouble one time. I didn't really <laughs> get in trouble. But the uh, church, the same church that we went to, I didn't really get in trouble. But there was this discussion after one Sunday that I spoke. And I was speaking to, in the adult service. And I made the statement. And I forget what the topic was about. But I was talking about people needing counseling and you know stuff like that, and I made the statement that I believe every every human being at some point in their life needs therapy or counseling whatever whatever term I use and I remember the next week in in a meeting, um, kind of this debrief meeting from the weekend of somebody saying to me uh, listen i don't think I don't think you should have said that because not everyone needs." Needs therapy and all that kind of stuff, and I was like, "No, I absolutely think that's not true. I think everyone does. They may not need intense like recovery, but everyone needs some type of, like you said, twelve step program because it's that constant. I feel like it's a constant recognition of where I've been, where I'm at now, where I'm going, what I need to do to continue doing the next right thing." Absolutely. So uh, you're going to be on the Dr. Oz show. Well, today, now as people are listening to it, what, uh, how did that happen, or what did you talk about? I mean, I know you told your story, right? It was about your story.
1: So, um, again, like I said, the company I work for, Amethyst Recovery Center, um, is highly involved in the community, and um, you know we try to get get the the name out there and to you know let people know that there's help the help as possible and so we have um an outreach coordinator based out of New York City mm-hmm. and uh she actually had been on the show in February her name's Allie Litwack and um again it was like this friend of a friend of a friend for her and they somebody involved with the Doctor Oz show and and they said, hey, do you know anybody who was really messed up and isn't messed up anymore? And they said, <laughs> <laughs> "They said, yeah, Allie Whitwack, right? So she goes on the show in February. Um, she did amazing. And um, I guess they were looking for someone else. So they called her and said the same thing. Hey, do you know anybody who was messed up and isn't messed up anymore? And she says, yeah, Allie Rouge. So... Um, it really, like, you know, everyone asked me, Oh, how'd you get involved with that? Da, da, da. And, like, there's really no explanation for it except God. Yeah. You know, for some reason, God wanted me to get on there and share my story. And, and um, so they called me that day. It was on a Friday. They called me. Um, I did a, about an hour phone interview. And then I had to record myself for two minutes, kind of telling my story. And um, they called me back and said, You're perfect. We want you here. When can you be in New York? and like I'm in I'm in my office in Port St. Lucie, Florida, you know. Yeah. So I ended up flying up on a Monday and we recorded on a Tuesday and it was it was just an amazing experience. You know, and my hopes are that it touches one person, you know. If I, if I can help one person with that segment, then my goal is completed. You know, that's how I try to look at it as. So
0: Wait. Your goal <laughs> isn't to be famous?
1: <laughs> I mean, if that's a byproduct of it, that would be really cool. <laughs> Um, but, yeah, it, it was it was really just a cool experience. And, and, again, like I said, I can't check it out to anything other than, than God. And he, what it did for me it really changed my perception of, like, what's out there. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so much out there. And we kind of talked about it beforehand. There's so much out there in the world. And, like, you just have to go get it. Mm-hmm. Like, I used to think, and I see it with my clients all the time. And I used to believe, that like, the world mm-hmm. owed me something. Like Mm. I should get that very entitled and I'm an only child too. So I'm like super bratty like (laughs) everything my whole (laughs) life was handed to me, Yeah. you know? And, um, especially, you know, being in recovery, I realized like the world doesn't owe me anything. Like I have to go get it. I have to work for it, you know? And it seems like unfortunately a lot of it is about who, you know, and connections and stuff. But again, going back to that next right thing, that's what I've realized the more I do for others and this is the sick twisted part about our society. sorry to talk about
0: I'm all about it. Yeah. Go for it.
1: So like our society tells us, again, the more stuff we have, the more we do for ourselves, the more we get facials and massages and get our nails done and have a Lamborghini and a big, huge mansion, the happier that we're going to be mm-hmm. right And that's. It's false. It's false delusion. And and what's so cool and what I'm learning is actually the less selfish I am and the more I do for other people and, like, maybe you can relate is the happier I am. And yeah. all that materialistic stuff, it just comes. That's, like, that'll happen on its own.
0: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It, yeah.
0: Well, if that is a necessity. Right. The material stuff. Right. Right. Like, I was listening to a podcast the other day and Jeremy Irons, the actor, mm-hmm. Jeremy Irons was the was the guest. And he said something that was really profound to me because he's just, he's a super famous actor, really well off, and he made this statement, I forget they were talking about some society stuff or whatever, and he made the statement that like, you know, all anyone really needs to feel value is uh a job of some kind, even if that job is one day a week, mm-hmm. and I think he talked to spe- like more in the context of a man, more so. Um, said at least for a man, like to have a purpose, to know that at least one day a week I've got something I have to accomplish, mm-hmm. and that I have a place to live. Um, really, is all that—that's that's awesome. all humanity needs for to to feel purposeful and all of that and, but all, and all this other stuff you're right it's all just filling a void right. of this backwards idea that that's what gives you purpose and right. meaning and all that kind of stuff I had someone ask me recently um, just doing an interview and they asked me about um, you know how, to, how does it feel to help people which I always I don't know if you get that question from people but I feel it's a, for me it's a weird question because I don't really know how to answer that right like i don't know i mean it
1: <laughs> feels great feels like life is
0: supposed to feel i guess
1: <laughs> right fulfilled yeah uh,
0: yeah um and it's such a so and makes me wonder the type of people that end up in recovery programs i feel like probably most people's views that don't understand it would see you are talking about the view that people have about drugs and negativity I think a lot of times we see well they're probably you know drug addicts are usually um, they're poor they're a certain race all these kinds of things like negative things we see but I feel like a lot of times it's the I live in New Tampa and I've got a nice car and I've got a nice house and I've got a lot of money and on and on and on but we never recognize that as the that's a really a person that is in ends up in recovery a lot of times because their life hits rock bottom
1: absolutely and that's what I kind of want to talk about, too, is is there is this this idea that a drug addict is somebody who was abused when they were a child and grew up in a poor neighborhood and had all these terrible things happen to them. And, and like, that's not my story at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I was raised in a beautiful house with beautiful parents that were married 31 years, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, had all the love and attention I could ever want, right? And I got, like I said before, I anything I wanted, I got it materialistic wise, Yeah, you know, and was told I was loved and told I was cared about. And again, you're absolutely right. Like that internal thing where I never felt good enough or I never felt worthy or I never felt like I deserved it. You know, Mm. although I had all these outside things and, you know, beautiful childhood got to travel the world and, you know, do all these cool things and, and that's the other thing I like to talk about is, is addiction or mental illness in general. Like, it doesn't discriminate, it doesn't care. You know, you see these celebrities, Robert Downey Jr. is a huge one, Steven Tyler, and all yeah. these people who have millions of dollars who are icons, you know, and they speak publicly about their drug addiction, mm-hmm. you know. So that's what is so funny. It really doesn't matter where you come from or what color you are or how your childhood was, because I've heard every story in the book. You know, and again, for me in particular, it's, I have no complaints. You know, I can't, and it almost made it harder because, or like more difficult because I wanted to blame it on my childhood. I wanted to say, oh, I use drugs because of this. And really? I, yeah, and I really had nothing to blame it on, you know. <laughs> um, for a long time, I said, um, because I was always like the bear girl in school and I was, Picked on and bullied and called the fat kid and all this stuff. And so I said for a long time, well, that's why I used. I used because Mm. I was picked on and bullied and and all this stuff. And and the reality is I I always felt that void. Mm. Or being four years old and thinking, you know, I'm not good enough or... You know, even going back to just addiction in general, I remember my mom handing me like a bag of candy, you know, and she said, "Okay, Allison, like just have one." And kind of going coinciding with that phenomenon of craving thing, I would have one piece of candy, and then continue to eat the entire bag, and then like get sick and vomit, and then still want more candy. Wow! Right. So like even as a kid, I had this this void or this this idea of let me get, take something outside of myself to feel better internally. That's amazing. Yeah. It's very
0: interesting concept. Wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, what would you say? Have you, have you kind of recognized or pinpointed or what would you say at four years old, that feeling of not being good enough? Do you have an, have you identified a cause of that or like what was going on internally that made you feel that way?
1: I think what and and it's funny and I almost said this earlier, but uh, my mom is a devout Christian and goes to church, and so she almost had similar ideas to the church. Very judgmental, perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Things have to be done this way. You're supposed to look this way. You know, this is how your life's supposed to go. Like I had a life plan mm-hmm. from. From as long as I can remember, Mm. right? You go to school, you get good grades, you go to college, you find a husband, you get a career, you get married, and you have kids. And, like, that's how you live your life. Right. And when I, you know, became physically dependent on drugs, you know, I did. I did really well in school. I got a full-ride scholarship to University of South Florida, right? And then all of a sudden, my life plan was thrown off track. Mm. Right? And so... I think she just instilled in me from, like a, from a very young age, this is how women act. This is how women look. This is what women do. And because I didn't fit in that description or fit in that puzzle piece of like, this is what women do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where that belief came from is I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I'm never going to live up to my full potential. I'm never going to be what she wants me to be. You know, because mm. I think as little kids, we always want validation from our parents. Right. Yeah,
0: for sure.
1: And like I was a daddy's girl and I loved to run around barefoot and I love football and rock music and all that stuff. And she or she wanted me to be this beauty queen. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's what she wanted the best for me. She wanted me to be a good girl. And I just didn't buy into that. I didn't mm. want that. I wanted to watch football in Ace Ventura with my dad, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's how I always, you know, wanted to live my life and was kind of this, like, tomboy. And it didn't, again, like, didn't fit into what she wanted and what she instilled in me was, like, quote-unquote correct, Mm
0: -hmm. you
1: know? Um, So, and it's just a theory, but that's where I kind of like to think where my turmoil started. yeah is not living up to what my parents necessarily wanted me to be.
0: Mm. So if you become a parent one day, how would you approach that differently with your child?
1: I've thought about this because I do. I still want that plan. Like I still want to get married and I'm back in school and trying to finish school. and um I feel like I would let my kid, you know, have freedom to choose how they want, you know, choose even their sexual orientation or where, how they want to dress or where they want to go to school. I would like to think that I would be open minded to those type of things, yeah. um, but still guide them, you know, mm-hmm. and, and again, like as addicts and alcoholics, I think even teenagers, we don't like to be told what to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and. Again, going back to the religious thing, religion tells you this is what you have to do. My mom told me this is what I have to do. And so, like, that rebellious nature of being a teenager and especially being, like, a drug addict, like, we want to go the complete opposite. Right. Right? So I feel like with my children, I want them to know that, you know, just be you. Mm
0: -hmm. Like,
1: whoever you are, your authentic, true self, like, be that. Yeah. You know?
0: Um as a kind of on the same lines i obviously I'm not a parent either, but a thing not i be- i' not yet, yet <laughs> A thing i I have observed and that I've heard from parents a lot of times is that probably the hardest thing in the world is to let your child make their own decisions because mm. you know, which maybe I could liken it to being a counselor to people in recovery. Right.
1: I was just about to say okay. that. As you're saying that I'm thinking about my clients.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but letting them make their mistakes and because you can't you can't protect them from everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like probably the most natural thing to be with is to build this wall of I don't want you to have to experience the hurt that I've gone through. I don't want you to feel all of the Terrible things that I felt throughout my life. I want to help you avoid that, and um, we end up creating a scenario where they do. You know, maybe they do become an addict of some kind because we've created this bubble. You know, whatever it is. Um. So. Uh, how how do you deal with that with your clients?
1: It's so funny because they call. T- I'm technically director of alumni so once people go through our program you know I have fun events for them to show that we can have fun in recovery Mm -hmm. right I stay in contact with them I offer them extra support you know and guidance and resources and different things like that so they kind of a lot of them call me like the month, which is funny because I'm 27 and they call me like their mom (laughs) you know Um, and I actually started I had to start going to um, Al-Anon because it gets so involved and so emotionally attached and you make bonds with these people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the reality of this disease is, is people are dying. Um, you know, we've lost, I've lost a few friends, um, from addiction to overdoses and, mm. and uh, the stuff on the streets right now is killing people. So it, it's so hard to just let go. Um, and again something like I'm newly learning like I talked about the selfishness and this idea of you know the more selfish we are the the better we we feel and how it's like this sick twisted thing where it's actually the opposite answer Mm -hmm. so for me that goes with control as well the more I try to control people or control things or control situations or even like control my life like it's almost the more unmanageable it is Mm -hmm. or the worse the clients act or (laughs) you know, you know, you were making the analogy of like kids, you know, so the more I try to control them, the more they act out. Yeah. Right. So it's almost this weird thing, this like paradox. If I let go, that's where the freedom is. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, um, you know, the first step is, is admitting that we're powerless over drugs and alcohol. And when I had said that, that anybody can benefit from twelve step is because you can literally put anything in that in that blank. I am powerless over everything except my attitudes and my actions. That's yeah. the only thing that I have power over, is how I handle situations and how I act. Right? Yeah. So if someone decides, and I see it all the time, clients will make the same decision that I made five years ago which resulted in a relapse right mm-hmm. and I'll even tell them hey I did the same thing and and I got high you know so are mm-hmm. you willing to risk doing the same thing like do you really think you're that much different so we all like to think that we're different and right. the truth is where a lot so of us have, are so like me. right exactly so you know and they'll still go through with it and they'll make the decision and they'll get high and all I can do is is pray. That's it. You know, I'm I'm powerless over what they do and and I just ask for for guidance and and I ask God like how I can help them. And that's mm-hmm. pretty much it. You know, I pray that they make it back. That's pretty much all I can do. It took a long time to get there, <laughs> but especially some of them you just want to like grab them. Um but again, I found that they use the analogy of of sand, right? So if you if you put your if you hold sand in your hand and you try to hold it so tightly, it's going to fall out. It's going to come out the edges. It's it's not going to be in your hands anymore. Right. But then if you also hold it too loosely, you're going to drop it that way, mm-hmm. right? So they talk about kind of just yeah. having like an easy firm grip on it, not too tight, not too loose. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I I try to put all situations like that. It's,
0: yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I can see it. it's got to be um, emotionally Draining. Draining. Yeah. It's got to <laughs> yeah. be a roller coaster.
1: It is. Absolutely. <coughs> and that's what, again, like I talked about, the people that, that you watch, you know, have those spiritual awakenings and gain things and sobriety and handle situations differently than what they used to. That's what makes it all
0: worth it, mm-hmm. you know? <clears throat> I used to tell, I, when I was a youth pastor, I used to jokingly say, when I would talk about, like, parents and relation, you know, kids' relationships, yeah. I used to jokingly say, listen, your parents used to be sane and cool and, <laughs> fat, you know, whatever. Whatever term you would put on it. And the reason they're not anymore is because you came along. It's your fault. Because, right. You know, I, <laughs> right. I would jokingly say it, but there was, there was a reality that of that to me of now they're responsible for this other life and it's like you said they're trying to figure out like how tightly do I hold how loosely do I hold and it's draining and all of that and so they just become insane on some level of like that's so true that's
1: so true that's exactly how I feel
0: yeah with some of
1: these kids
0: yeah I bet what kind of age ranges do you have of people that are your clients? Is it all over the map?
1: I mean, t- yeah. I mean, typically mm-hmm. our age range is anywhere from eighteen to fifty. I think we've even had some sixty-year-olds, um, but it seems like the majority of the ages are from nineteen to twenty-five. Okay, that seems to be um, the biggest age group that we have.
0: Man, so let me think on a like a fifty-year-old that would be. Like, how... First of all, I'd be impressed that they made... Depending on what their addiction is. Right. But they made it to 50. I oh,
1: know. And
0: got into a recovery program.
1: Right. I've seen a lot of people... What's What's interesting, too, is, is I've met a few people who didn't pick up drugs or alcohol until they were older. Oh, which okay. is strange. And I'm still trying to figure out the concept behind that. Like, what at 30 years old makes you pick up a crack pipe? You know what I mean? But... You know, a lot of people it's circumstantial. Mm -hmm. Something happens in their life, and again, they look for something outwardly to fix it, yeah, or make them feel better, or cope with it. You know,
0: is there something to? uh, Because one of the things that we, you know, to don't do this drug because it can be a gateway to this other drug. Mm -hmm. Is that a reality? Is that a absolutely? And that's
1: actually um, the whole segment on Dr. Oz was actually about Adderall.
0: Sorry, the cat is...
1: I think she smells my cat. (laughs) Yeah, it could be. Yeah, Kitty. Mm -hmm. It's funny. So yeah, the whole segment on Dr. Oz was actually about Adderall addiction. And that was their... Yeah, which that was their um, whole thing was they wanted... A female who had been to college and who had been prescribed Adderall, and it took them off the deep end. And like that's kind of like I told you before, when I I had my first drink and I first started smoking marijuana at 13, right? And I think by 15, which is when I was like at church, is when I got into cocaine and some kind of harder stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but at 17, I you know went away to college and. And um, I don't believe, they talk about this invisible line that we cross from like normalcy, whatever that looks like, into alcoholism or addiction, right? And um, I was 17, I had been depressed and they had always thought something was wrong. I was very suicidal. And um, so I went to the psychiatrist and and literally all I had said was, I have a hard time paying attention and boom, they wrote me this prescription for Adderall. Now, mm. at the time, I didn't know what that was, but I remember taking it, I remember thinking, ooh, I really like how this feels. Very similar to cocaine. And um, actually, on the Oz Show, that's what really? they- Really? Yeah, that's, on, on Dr. Oz, which <coughs> hopefully people will see it today, um, they show two molecules, right? And they look exactly the same, like two chemical um, formulas of, of this molecule, molecule component, and All they do is they add one little molecule on one of them Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and they show one of the molecules is Adderall and one of them is methamphetamine. So methamphetamine is actually one (laughs) molecule away from Adderall, which is legal and prescribed (coughs) by doctors every single day.
0: Yeah, which is, is, again, I have this conversation all the time now, especially because of the debate about Legalizing marijuana and right. states legalizing and all that kind of stuff. I grew up in a law enforcement family, and um, many of the many of the people, or at least a few of the ones that I've talked to about that in particular, would all say things like, you know, I'd rather deal with somebody that's been smoking marijuana than some, someone that's drinking, because there's completely different right. reactions to those usually the reaction to alcohol is worse because they get violent and all these other kinds of things. Right. Um, and this whole, you know, the whole idea of like marijuana having legitimate medical benefits to people and we balk at that but we don't balk at the um, chemically based, created in a lab, things like Adderall. Right. Or that we just go, oh yeah, let's give that out. Right. And... I'm going, yeah, I'm not necessarily saying marijuana is the best thing in the world. Um, but it's got to be better than
1: oh absolutely than the
0: chemical stuff that we're giving to people. like I don't care to legalize it. We've legalized half the other all these other stuff that right. I feel like are worse and creates worse things with people.
1: Absolutely. and that's actually how my whole addiction started was from prescription pain meds. Mm. Uh, my boyfriend at the time was prescribed oxycodone right and and obviously I t- I did take it without a prescription but you know thinking well yeah. he was prescribed this from a doctor I took a quarter of one sure right and it was it was off to the races from there and you know flash forward 4 years later and I'm using IV heroin right and to mm. think it all started with this quarter of a pill prescribed by a doctor wow it's it's very interesting and it, and I'm definitely <clears throat> um Against the pain management clinics and big pharma and all that, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I don't know. yeah, I won't get into it, but
0: yeah, no, I really it's,
1: think it's like a huge like conspiracy of like population control, because people, people are dying from this stuff all the time. I know there's yeah. pain management clinics <laughs> in Brandon where there are you know lawsuits filed <clears> against <throat> them for overprescribing and resulting in death. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it's like, when is this going to stop?
0: But I can't go to, I can't go to the pharmacy and buy my, uh, over the counter allergy medicine right. without, <laughs> right. I've gotten told no right. because I bought it, I bought it too soon in the, in the days of, like, right. Only every 15 days or something like that. Right. it was day 14 and they wouldn't sell it to me kind of thing.
1: And that's when I was, uh, uh, this is kind of deflated some over the years, but when I was in my active addiction was when the huge pain (laughs) pill epidemic in Florida was going on. Mm -hmm. People were driving from out of state to come down here because literally all you had to do, you just walked into a pain management clinic and gave them cash and they would write you a prescription. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that's how it kind of took off. And. In 2011, they ended up hooking all the pharmacies together because yeah. so, we would go f- to like nine different doctors and then nine different pharmacies mm-hmm. and just get our prescriptions filled. Yeah. And what happened was, so they finally <coughs> caught on to that and they did link the pharmacies, which <coughs> I think that yeah, did help and improved. Mm-hmm. But what had <coughs> happened was, so the prescription pain pill population went down and all of a sudden, five years ago, you never saw heroin in Florida. And all of a sudden, once the pain pills went down, there was massive amounts of heroin moved into Florida. Yeah. It was very interesting how all that.
0: That's crazy. Yeah.
1: So what you were talking about earlier, like the war on drugs, is it helping or is it inflating it or you know what? And it's, Mm -hmm. it's like when they hit this, the whack-a-mole, they hit one of the moles down and another one will pop up. So
0: yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. By the way, speaking of Oxy, I realized not too long ago how I could become – and I I have an addictive personality to certain things.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Medicine is not necessarily one of those things. But I did go, oh, now I see how people get addicted to this because I took – I got my wisdom teeth taken out Mm -hmm. and that's what they prescribed to me was Oxy. And I took one pill, didn't feel a thing and my next thought like after a while of it setting in I was like I didn't really feel like I don't feel anything right <laughs> my next thought was maybe I should take two <laughs> yeah. And I thought, yeah and then as soon as I had that thought I went yeah that's how people get addicted to
1: right. it <laughs> that's, that's exactly what happens yeah
0: and I actually ended up not taking any more after that because I didn't because I didn't feel really any effects of it other than like it kind of made me a little tired right but that was about it Right, um <clears throat> I thought you know I've got a really high tolerance to pain medication or um, I'm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I well, I thought I just must have a high tolerance, so I would take two. But then that would be the that would be the. I just kicked the door open. Oh, that felt really great. I'm going to take another one.
1: Exactly. And so that's the difference between like you and me is. So you didn't take any more after that. You were right. I'm done. Right. Yeah. And so they say like an like an addict on a pill bottle. If you you see, it'll say like one every four hours. Right. We mm-hmm. read it as four every one hour. Okay. Right? So like that's how we. You know, our brains are just different.
0: Yeah. Oh, I could totally see that. I mean, my dad, you know, my dad broke his uh, elbow one time or messed up his arm and uh, he got, I forget, I don't know what it was, but whatever pain medication. um, He would tell you, and he quit smoking, cold turkey, like when I was a kid. And like just up in one day went, now I'm going to stop smoking and just didn't smoke anymore, which is amazing. It's fascinating to me that someone can do that.
1: Right.
0: Um, but he said the only the only other thing he said that was the hardest thing I ever did in my life was quitting mm-hmm. smoking. The second hardest thing I ever did was to stop taking pain medication after I broke my arm.
1: And that that to me, that's what really gets me upset is so these doctors, they don't tell you, especially like when I got the Adderall prescription, they didn't say this is potentially addicting. They didn't say you're gonna go through withdrawal once you start stop taking it. Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. and they don't I think education is key. You know, telling these people, listen, if you start taking this medication, you will become physically dependent. Whether that's addicted or not, but your body will physically need that drug in order to be normal. Yeah. Like, they don't tell people that, especially with the pain pills. Yeah. Which is terrifying. (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is. And I think you're right that everyone has some type of addiction... Sense within them because, like, I see it. All, my fiance and I were talking about it one time about alcohol, and you know, she would always be concerned when I would say things like, Man, I had a tough day, I need a drink because she's had some history in her family
1: mm-hmm. of
0: alcoholism. So, for me to say that to her was, Oh, you might be an alcoholic, right? Which is not the case, it was, it was. What everyone does of I need a stress relief of some kind and for some people it's I got to go to the gym and work out and that's the stress relief. But that also can become that addiction of like I don't know how to function without going to the gym. Right. Or I don't know how to function without – and that's really kind of the distinction I make with people and I could be wrong is that um, it feels like if you don't know how to function without that thing, then that's probably – right. And addiction.
1: Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. And to look at I mean the key thing for us is is does it make your life unmanageable or does it make your feelings unmanageable? Mm. Right? So that kind of goes hand in hand with what you're saying. Would you be okay if this thing didn't exist? Like how would you handle it if you didn't have that outlet?
0: Right. You know?
1: It's so when I actually laugh. One of my friends from high school, I saw some she posted some picture and, and it was along the lines of that, like she's at the bar. She's at, like, McDenton's, and she <clears throat> says, oh, need this as a stress relief after a long day of work. And I kind of, like, giggled to myself because, you know, a lot of people look at addiction as, like, a weakness or, like, oh, you're just mm. weak. Like, why can't you just stop? And the thing about sobriety is, I, and, you know, it, it's an empowering thing for me because when I have a long day, I, I can't go get a drink. I can't yeah. go smoke a joint or just, like, relax, you know. Great. I have to work through that. I mean, that's literally my only option is to, mm. to learn how to work through that. So I think it's just funny how things change. Yeah. You know? My perception on that used to be, and I used to look at myself as like, you're so weak. Why can't you just stop? Why can't you live your life like a normal person? You know? And now, now it's like on the opposite spectrum of like, I feel strong. I feel empowered. Mm-hmm. I don't need a drink today. I don't, you know, need to look for something outside of myself. Right. That's what we talk about. There's growth in the uncomfortability. Mm-hmm. It's like we don't grow when things are comfortable. Yeah.
0: yeah. There's probably something to say too that um, in a lot of ways you're probably more normal than people that we consider to be normal. <laughs> because you're honest about uh, your struggle, your problem, whatever whatever term you want to put on it. Like, right. Where most people aren't honest about whatever's going on inside. Right. You know, it, it plays itself out in things like that. Of, oh, I'm really stressed out. I'm going to go have a drink or I'm really stressed out. I'm going to go to the gym. Right. And not a, well, what are you stressed out about? Like,
1: right. We're forced to sit it, there and talk about it. Is really it really work <laughs>
0: right. that you're stressed out about? Was it really that work was a bad day or is it that you felt devalued right, because of your job and which comes from your childhood or whatever, all these other right. things. Like, Maybe you should talk about that,
1: right? We are—we're forced to look at ourselves, yeah. Which is interesting, and and I and you're kind of right in that spectrum, and not saying any way is better or worse, but, but again, we live in a society where it's you know oh go do this and you'll feel better, mm-hmm. go have a drink to relieve some stress, or go do this, you know, and instead this in this recovery way of life, it's like okay, well, what's going on with me? Like what? How am I feeling today? Like what's really happening? <laughs> Yeah, you know, and kind of force. That's what this whole thing is about is is internal work. I yeah. say recovery is an inside job.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, just I'm curious: is there uh, between men and women that you um, that are your clients or whatever you whatever you would call them? Um, is there one gender that's easier to deal with than the other, or that? I guess, handles recovery better than the other?
1: Uh, I would definitely, and you'll, and I'm just figuring this out too. I kind of just looked around mm-hmm. the room one day and there's like 80% men and 20% women. And really? I, yeah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what the hell's going on? You know, that there's so many men in recovery and I do think, and maybe I'm biased, but I say that men are easier because they're not as emotional.
0: Hmm. Yeah,
1: and I mean, there's there's definitely pros and cons to like both genders because yeah. males have their egos, right. so they don't want to say what's going on, or they don't want to mm-hmm. talk about their issues, or they're known that they, they've been taught to think it's weak to talk about if you're having a hard time. Right. So that's difficult from from the male perspective. Right. From the women's perspective, um, we're much more emotional. We're much more sensitive. We're you know, and it's. There is also this stigma. What I've been taught like through the court system is like, there's <clears throat> an even bigger um, stigma put on women at being an active addiction. right? Really? And you're supposed to be mothers. You're supposed to be this. Again, kind of like what I right. was saying, what my yeah. mom taught me. And so to be a, a female addict or a female alcoholic has this even bigger stigma, I think. And so women are shunned. From recovery, or they're you know shunned further into their addiction because they think, oh, I'm not supposed to be this way. Mm. Um, And kind of going more into it, like females have more resources Mm. to use. I know there's a huge like, I don't know if you want me to talk about that, but there's a huge like human trafficking um, network in actually Tampa alone.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, Um, absolutely.
1: And so. I've heard a lot of men say, you know, oh, if, if I could get my drugs that way that I wouldn't come back. Like I wouldn't get sober. Wow. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting and, and um I think it I think it is different for each gender. hmm And again, not to say one's like better or worse, but I, I do personally think it is more difficult for women
0: interesting. to get sober. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. It's funny the ego thing too. I heard a comedian um one time say and he it was a serious conversation but he just happened to be a comedian that he said, um and someone made a made a derogatory comment about ego mm-hmm. and he his thing was like I don't think ego's not really the ego is the inanimate of it. It can be good or bad. Right. Because ego because if you think about it really, ego is your bodyguard. Mm-hmm. At least for um, you know for a guy because your ego is what keeps you um, uh, the ego is if sometimes for guys, what also um, it may it may keep us from wanting to talk about our problems but it also forces us to find a way out of our problems because right. I'm a man I've got to I've got to be better or I've got to right. you know that kind of thing um, which was a fascinating way of looking at it and he said you know because really your ego if without, without your ego on some level you probably wouldn't um, accomplish a goal that you want to accomplish. Absolutely. You know, um,
1: I got sober partly through ego because people <clears throat> told me, they said, This is your 10th treatment center. Like, what makes you think you're ever going to get sober? You're not going to get sober. Mm. You're not going to get it this time. And so mm. my ego said, Well, watch me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's kind of what he said. Like, ego keeps, ego is the thing that keeps you from just taking the abuse mm-hmm. sometimes. Like, um, you know, you sometimes need that. And mm-hmm. so, at And, you know, now you say that it kind of makes sense maybe that um, on one level that there would be more men in recovery because on the positive side, maybe there's some ego that's driving them to try to get out of whatever their thing is. So that's really fascinating. So um, to kind of start wrapping up a little bit, what kind of advice would you give to people that are – let's maybe break it out like to a parent. Or to friends that are, they maybe observe this in their friend, family member, whatever, Um, and then maybe to someone who internally thinks they might be an addict or knows that they're an addict, but they're not doing anything about it, they're afraid to.
1: Right. Um, well, definitely for parents and friends. Um, we actually deal with a lot of family members um, at Amethyst Recovery Center. We have a huge family program. Um, we've seen the benefits of having the family involved with the client's recovery. Um, you know, the success skyrockets when there's family support. Yeah. Um, as far and and this is what I tell people because I'm by no means a professional. Like yes, I work in the field, <laughs> but I always just say like I'm a junkie who got sober and like you know climbed my way up the ladder and now I get to live my my passion, you know. Yeah. But um, I tell parents all the time that like one of the best things, as terrible as it sounds, one of the best things my parents ever did for me is tell me to leave the house and never to come back, uh-huh. because again, kind of going back to that ego thing is is yes, it did. I did run my addiction harder into the ground after that. Thankfully, I survived, and it forced me to grow up. It forced me to learn how to survive on my own Mm. and how to be independent. Um, There's a huge thing about parents enabling or friends enabling and saying, you know, well, especially growing up, I remember hearing kids or, or parents say, well, I'd rather them drink at my house than out you know, mm-hmm. somewhere else mm-hmm. at least under my roof I know that they're safe um, but for me that's kind of like feeding into it and, and co-signing it and saying oh yeah this is okay if you do this mm-hmm. um, so for me for, for parents and, and friends I would say you know ask them what's going on like talk to them and come at them from like a non-judgmental place mm-hmm. um, and, and ask them like hey what's really going on with you and um, and help is out there. There's so many programs and so many resources that I don't even think people know about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say reach out, you know, um, contact <coughs> anyone if they know anyone, um, you know, our website's amethystrecovery.org, and um, even if someone is not good for placement with us, we always find different facilities, that's a good fit for them, whether that's state-run or that's out of the state. We actually um, are opening, sorry, now I'm getting off topic, but Mm -hmm. next week we're opening, uh, it's called Raw New England Recovery and Wellness in New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. and what's interesting is, I don't know if anyone listens to this, that's up north, but um, New Hampshire has the highest overdose, overdose rates per capita in the country. Wow. which is like yeah super shocking right you think New Hampshire it's like beautiful and like green mm-hmm. and up in the northeast so that's what we're doing is we're opening a facility up there um, to again try to spread the word um, and as far as you know if someone does think they're struggling like pick up that phone they say you know it's a 10,000 pound phone and it's hard to, to kind of admit defeat right mm-hmm. but that's the first step Like, that's how your life is going to change is by saying, you know what, my life is unmanageable, I can't stop drinking, I can't stop using drugs, and get help before it's too late, you know, Um, I haven't mentioned it, but like the stuff, remember I told you like the pain pills, right? They, those went away and now heroin then heroin came in and now there's the synthetic drugs that are made in a lab that are 10,000 times more powerful than morphine. And that's why all these people are dying. You can use one time and die right there. And so that's why I always tell people, you know, addiction is a downward elevator and you can get off at any floor you want. You know, some mm. of us decide to get off on the freaking bottom floor right before death. Mm-hmm. You know, but you know, if if you think you have a problem, even even the slightest bit, and you you think you know you're miserable and you're not happy, like I can promise you that there is a way out.
0: Mm. That's really good. Yeah. By the way, the girl that you called, that came and picked you up, um, was she also someone, also someone that was in recovery?
1: Yeah, she was, and she okay. actually worked at a treatment facility, so. She got me in there right away.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Um. It's fascinating. There's probably. I man, I would probably would constantly go back to it. You can't. I feel like you can't help someone else unless you recognize with yourself that there's. Absolutely. Because you're on the same level.
1: And and the first time, and I do see kids. And the first time I went to treatment, my parents, how my parents got me to go to treatment the first time, where they started recognizing something was wrong, is they said, "Well, we're going to turn your cell phone off if you don't go to treatment." And it's like <laughs> this ongoing, it's like this ongoing joke. My friends make fun of me so bad, um, and it did. It forced me to go to treatment because I didn't want to lose my cell phone. Yeah. Um, Wow. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful for them, but, you know, obviously I wasn't ready and it didn't stick. But what I will say is that a seed was planted. Yeah. Because what happened was it was the first time I had, de- like, fully detoxed and came off of everything and I got sober and they, they call it a pink cloud, right? Like, I was on this pink cloud and I felt good and I was starting to look better and, like, I could wake up in the morning and not have to put a substance in my body, which mm. felt amazing, right? So I got a taste of of sobriety and a taste of, of freedom, but I just wasn't ready, you know. Mm. Something something in our brain tells us like, oh, just one more time, or you can control it, or it's gonna be different this time, and right. It's almost it is almost like a schizophrenic thing where like you're like you hear a line, a delusion, and it's in your own voice, mm-hmm. so you believe it.
0: Yeah, you like yeah. think,
1: oh yeah, it'll be different.
0: Yeah, it never is. <laughs> Which is uh' I'm, I, everyone can relate to that because even if they're not an addict, that voice that same voice tells mm-hmm. them whatever that decision is that they're about to make, well it'll be different this time
1: right,
0: so interesting uh how's your How's your relationship now on this side of things with your family
1: Well. My mom's one of my best friends now. I spend a lot of time with her. Um, both my parents got to see me pick up my one-year medallion of sobriety, um, which was so cool. They both cried and told me that they were proud of me for the first time in a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Part of our program is we make amends to those that we've hurt. Right. And so and I was about nine months sober, and I was able to Make amends to them and and tell them I was wrong for all the things that I did, and and ask them how can I make it up to you? How can I right my wrongs? And both of them that just looked at me and and said, "We just want you to stay sober. We just want you to be the person that we know you can be." You know, which is a really cool experience. Um, Then actually, it's they say like there'll come a time when the only thing between you and a drink or you and a drug is God. Right, and so, um, you know, I had been working my program and I was about 16 months sober. And um, I got a call from my mom that my dad passed away suddenly from a stroke. And um, and everyone thought, like, you're talking about ego, everyone thought, like, this is it, she's gonna go back out, she's gonna use over this. And and I remember thinking and like feeling my dad with me and like Mm -hmm. looking over me, it was very odd like I felt him there and I remember him, him saying to me, like, it's going to be okay. Like, you're going to be okay. And you're going to learn from this and you're going to grow from this and you're going to help someone. And what's really cool, not, I mean, however you want to look at it. I try to look at things in a good way now, but I had four clients in the past two months after my dad's death who their dads died. And I got to sit there and say, you don't have to use over this. You don't have to drink over this. Like we're gonna get through this together. It's just like super cool. And I ha- like I part of me thinks that he's up there. Like that whole Doctor Oz thing. He actually met Doctor Oz like seven years ago. Oh wow. Yeah. So part of me thinks like he has something to do with that. You know. Mhm. I don't know what happens exactly. You know, after this life form, but. <clears throat> I like to think no one that, does. yeah it's exactly awesome. <laughs> right, <clears throat> but my life really has skyrocketed um mm-hmm. because I chose to channel that the grief and the negative energy into into helping others
0: mm-hmm. that's
1: what kind of happened mm-hmm. as I started this new job and threw myself into it, yeah, and it's just really interesting, all the blessings that have that have come mm-hmm. from it, you know
0: that's that's amazing, yeah, it's really cool that's. It's so, as um, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for, heartless is not the right word, but as it may sound, it's probably such a great thing that those clients also, because you have that group. Like if you're just by yourself, even with probably your council people around you, Mm -hmm. but someone that knows and understands, again, like the girl that called you. Right. She knew where you were at and understood where you're at. Like right. I feel like, without that, without a group of people, everyone needs that that understands. Like I get it. I'm going through that too, or I've gone through that. Absolutely. As well, um, and that's crazy. I'm going to sound really unlike a pastor here for a second. <laughs> um, the whole, the energy thing. I used to hate this, like what you just said about you know channeling your energy into something else. I used to hate that statement because I grew up. In a very, very, um, conservative, legalistic, judgmental, um, church environment. Mm-hmm. And any, any phrases like that, statements like that were like new age, uh, right. like it's, that's all, that's all Satan, yeah. you know, uh, kind of things. And <clears throat> the older I got, the more I started thinking for myself and <clears throat> studying and paying attention to science and things like that. Um, you know from a scientific level, you know all the matter that makes up this chair that we 're sitting on this table that we 're at is the same matter that makes up the human body, and as these things deteriorate, that matter goes into something else like on a on a subatomic base level, it all turns into something else right. and I do think there's a side of religion, Christianity that forgets that God is very much an energy transfer between people, and there 's something. There is something real about intuition and feeling the energy of someone else and knowing that that energy is there and it's all energy transfers of, it's the same way that we know I'm going to be, I feel in danger right? over whatever. I can't tell you why, but I'm in this room or I'm out running and it's nighttime and for some reason I feel danger. Right. I don't see anything, but there's these energy transfers that I think we take for granted a lot of times. Mm-hmm. That if we paid way more attention to, um, and, and kind of putting aside that stigma from a religious, I'm kind of talking to all the religious people that do this thing, put that stigma (laughs) aside and recognize that, yeah, it is channeling your energy and making a choice to put that into something else. Absolutely. Which I think would apply to a whole lot of stuff. It does. Instead of being angry at that person because they did you wrong, channel that into something else. Absolutely. Because it's all energy. That anger is just energy. So, um, <clears throat> I'm really proud of you. Thanks. <laughs> oh, Thank man. you. It's so cool to see where you're at. Yeah. Um, so I have two final questions. One of is for you. One is for the audience. I always end with with a question to the audience. Right. Um, question for you is under the you know the podcast boldly going. Uh, it's all around this context of of I believe that people can boldly go do the thing they want to do. So in your context, the way I put it is that you know, people can boldly go and make the next right step instead of the bad decision. <clears throat> I ask every guest this because um, everyone has a different philosophy and I feel like it's good for people to hear different ideas about this same thing. Um, what is your belief or do you believe that every, every person does have the ability to boldly go and do whatever it is? In your context, recover. From their addiction, um, get out of their addiction, or to just boldly go and do the right, the right thing.
1: Absolutely, I believe that anyone <clears throat> struggling with drug addiction can recover because I was that hopeless case. I was that person where, you know, my parents asked me if I wanted to be buried or cremated. Everyone expected me to die, uh-huh. another statistic of an overdose, and I'm sitting here before you, with two and a half years sober, with this amazing beautiful life you know so i i definitely 100% wholeheartedly believe that anyone can recover um i also believe so on like a life basis not even recovery that anything in this world is possible anything i was sitting one of my dreams in life which sounds crazy one of my biggest dreams was to go to new york city Because I wasn't allowed to go because my mom told me it was dirty and it was dangerous. (laughs) So I was never allowed to go. And here I am. I was 27 years old. And I'm getting a flight in New York City. And not only am I going to New York City, I'm at ABC Studios with Dr. Drew and Dr. Oz. And I'm sitting on the couch. And I remember thinking to myself, like, don't they know where i've been like don't they know where i've come from and i kept like i was literally pinching myself and like blinking like, kept like blinking my eyes because it didn't feel real yeah and and again it was only this short little segment and and to me it was it spoke volumes about what life has to offer
0: yeah
1: you know that's awesome so, yeah
0: it's so cool It was really cool new york's not all dirty
1: no I love it. I'm <laughs> in love with it and my mom didn't. my mom was pissed I told her I was like I'm gonna move there I'm gonna be a reverse snowbird and like live in Florida and then go to New York in the right. summertime and stuff and she was like eh. she told me not to like look people in the eye she told me not to wear jewelry oh, and I had like a blast that. it was I loved it so much wow yeah
0: that's awesome how cool is Doctor Drew in person?
1: Doctor Drew was amazing. I know everyone keeps. I've always me. wanted to meet that guy. He is so cool. He was introduced himself, super nice, gave me a hug afterwards. Was asking me my opinion on different uh, medications and stuff, and was hilarious. He was great. That's awesome. Yeah, even even cooler in person than on TV.
0: That's so great. Yeah.
1: That's
0: really cool. I'm yeah. glad you got to live your dream. Getting right? to live your dream. Right. That's amazing yeah. really really proud of you so, cool. um, so to finish out to all the to the audience the question I always ask is um, you've you've heard a story you've heard a boldly going story and um, there is no lost cause I think is what you would say um, and essentially what you said in your answer um, so those of you listening um, what can you do this week uh, today this month to to Begin boldly going or to continue and in the way Allie put it uh, the next right thing because you don't have to paint the whole picture you don't have to get the whole sobriety right out of the gate it's the next right step so what can you do start today doing that Um, so Allie one last thing to finish is there anything you want to promote obviously you're on the uh, Dr. Oz show today do you know what time or does it it's different, it different
1: per state. Um, okay. It's usually, it's a daytime social, anywhere between 1 and 2 p.m. usually.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so that will be aired. Um, please definitely check out amethystrecovery.org is our treatment facility. Mm-hmm. And also um, New England Raw is our newest facility that will be open next week in Manchester, New Hampshire. Mm. Um, and again, if you are struggling, there's an 800 number on our website and give that number a call and we will find you help. We will find you placement. Money, no money, insurance, no insurance. We'll make sure you get the help you need. So
0: awesome. Yeah. Al, you're the best.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me out. Well,
0: of course. Good <laughs> time Everybody's done. <laughs> <laughs>